Today we continue the discussion of the name statistics argument for the historicity or historical reliability of the Gospels and Acts and a recent critique of that argument by uh, Camille Greger and Brian Blaze. So today I'm going to be talking about one of, I would say, the three biggest problems with their statistical analysis. There are other problems that I see, but there are two or three that are really huge, and I would say this one lays claim to be perhaps the most important, and I call it mutilating the sample. Now, a note about terminology as we go into this. I will try to be consistent with this terminology. I may have some slips of the tongue, so please forgive me if I do. Um, a name in my terminology and Gregor and Blaze terminology and Richard Bacham's terminology in this argument can be uh, used for more than one person, right? Obviously. Um, so the name Simon is one thing and the person, Simon Peter, is another thing. I will try consistently to say 79 persons when I mean persons, okay, and maybe, uh, you know, 454 names when I mean names, and to maintain that distinction uh, consistently. As I say, I may have a verbal slip, but that's how those are used, okay? So if we speak of a number of persons, we mean something different than if we speak of a number of uh, different names, okay? Because multiple people can have the same name. Another uh, terminological thing is the term occurrences. Now, one reason why I'm not going to use that very often is because it's just not a, a natural language use of the word occurrences, but it is useful. Um, and this is because one person can have more than one name. Last time I briefly mentioned disambiguations. So, you know, Simon, Peter, right? Simon is one name, Peter is another name, but they're both used for the same person, Peter being used to disambiguate uh, between that Simon and a different Simon. So when uh, Gregor and Blaze talk about occurrences, uh, and this is fine, what they mean is like a pairing of a person with a name. Okay, so in Simon Peter, you've got the pairing of a person with the name Simon and a pairing of that same person with the name Peter. And so in a sense, you have two different occurrences, each one of one uh, occurrence of one name apiece. So you've got one occurrence of Simon there and one occurrence of Peter. Sometimes I'm going to use persons and occurrences interchangeably, but there is this, this technical difference because you can have one person with two names and therefore uh, that person constitutes an occurrence of one of those names and then an occurrence of the other name. So that gets a little bit confusing, but I think you'll see that in practice as we go along, it's not as confusing as you might've thought. So that's terminology out of the way there. Um, this crucial procedure that Gregory Blaze engaged in that I call um, mutilating the sample, the Gospels and Acts sample, was this. For any 
person, if his existence is attested in the Gospels or Acts and is also attested in the writings of Josephus, the uh, unargued Pauline epistles, or Papias, and there might be a fourth one, but I think those are the three places, they take that person and that, you know, person name occurrence out of the Gospels and Acts data set. Because what we're doing is, as I discussed last time, we're comparing the Gospels and Acts name data with the name data in uh, Tal Ilan for Palestinian males, because that's where, you know, she's got a big bulk of names to give us a really interesting statistical population. Um, so they're taking these people out of the Gospels set solely because they're attested to exist elsewhere. Now this is just really, really strange and it's very important because there are about 26 of these persons. So they start out with 79, which is Balcom's number. I think it should be just a little higher. I would argue for 83, but I'm not going to argue for that here in this video. We'll use 79. They start with 79 persons, which is um, Balcom's number. And then they reduce that by 26, because there are 26 persons who are attested in these other places. So, um, for example, Ananias the high priest, or Annas the high priest, these two are attested in Josephus. Um, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, is attested as existing in uh, the Pauline epistles. Jesus himself attested as existing in uh, the Pauline epistles. Um, and even Thomas, they take out, uh, several disciples they take out because Papias mentions them. So just because they're attested elsewhere and what they say is, well, we're not contesting the existence of these persons. So we're gonna, we're gonna take them out of the gospels and Acts data. Now that is, that is really strange. That's their only argument. I was just reviewing this a few minutes before I started uh, recording this video. Like, can that really be their only argument? But that is the only argument that they give is that uh, these are, quote, not in contention of being invented. Uh, let me read a, a quote here. Um, here they're talking about the analysis of the Gospels and Acts name statistics. They say it is largely uninformative because Gospels Acts already include a large number of persons independently attested to exist and therefore not in contention of being invented in the process of anonymous community transmission in the first place, which leaves the sample size of contested persons and their names very small. Okay, so yeah, you know, 79 minus 26 is 53. 53 is quite small. They even call this a crucial consideration. Um, the phrase uh, anonymous community transmission is Balcom's phrase to describe uh, form criticism, which he's arguing against. And so they're saying that, hey, you know, if we just grant that these people exist, then we're not even going to leave them in the Gospels and Acts sample. This is extremely hard to understand. Like, why? 
And the only thing I can think of, but it still doesn't really amount to an argument, is that they, they seem to be thinking that if they grant that these persons existed, then nothing about their their use in the Gospels and Acts can possibly be relevant to the argument. Because ultimately, we're curious about whether uh, the authors of Gospels and Acts were inventing um, things, and so they're not uh, arguing that the Gospels and Acts invented these persons because they grant that they exist, so they just they just have no place in the argument. We're just going to take them out. Uh, naturally, this this makes a big difference. And actually, I decided because this video is already going to have some length to it, I'm going to talk somewhat more in the next presentation, which I believe will be released on Christmas Eve, um, about what difference this makes that you could just see right away just by reading their argument, even without doing an elaborate statistical reanalysis. Uh, and they obviously think it's going to make a difference. That's why they call it a, a crucial consideration. They, you know, they acknowledge its importance. Um, so they don't seem to realize several things about why these names should be left in the Gospels and Acts sample. For one thing, the stories about them are in many, many cases unique to the Gospels even if or Acts, even if the persons are attested elsewhere. So for example, the story of uh, the involvement of Annas the high priest in Jesus' trial. Okay, that, that's it's not found anywhere other than in the Gospels, uh, the Gospels specifically. Okay, um, so if we're wondering about anonymous community transmission and invention, then a skeptic is certainly open to the possibility, even if he doesn't have to deny that Annas existed, in order to be thinking that perhaps the author, um, John, in particular, who talks about Annas being involved in Jesus' trial, invented the idea that Annas was involved in Jesus' trial, right? That could be, uh, or maybe not John, maybe just some anonymous community member, right? Um, so those stories could certainly be the product of anonymous community transmission. So there's still something at stake here. There's still something on the table at issue between people who think the Gospels and Acts are highly reliable and those who don't. Um, also, the, the Gospels and Acts are implying that they have their own access. I mean, no, that kind of meta-level statement is not explicitly made, but when John tells the story about uh, Jesus being brought before Caiaphas and also being brought before uh, Annas, he's, he's implying that he knows, you know, this story himself. Um, he's certainly not, you know, admitting that he's making it up. Okay, so these are supposed to have um, some kind of importance for the Gospels and Acts historicity because either those stories are true or they're not. Remember what I said last time, part of why this ar argument is so attractive is because of the sort of organic way in which these names arise. Okay, um, Ananias name, the, the priest Ananias arises because he presides over um, the trial of Paul. So it's, it's not just somebody sort of 
uh, listing a name and then going, oh, and by the way, he existed, and I'm not going to say anything more about him. His existence just arises in this very natural way in the telling of the story. So it's embedded in the story, even though we have lists of, of the um, disciples of Jesus, still, when it talks about, you know, the 12, right? The 12 were with him and so forth. And that goes back to that list, who are the 12? And many of them, of course, have um, specific, more specific stories about them, a, a speaking part, as we might say, you know, Philip or someone like that. So they're not um, just listing the fact that somebody existed in some bare fashion. And therefore, we're still disagreeing about something, okay? Um, another thing that they don't seem to realize that shows that they definitely should have left this in there, this is very important statistically, those of us who are making the name statistics argument are arguing from what you might call um, the shape, okay, of the, the distribution in the Gospels and Acts. The, the shape of the names. You know, we've got this many Simons and this many Josephs and so forth, and then it kind of dribbles down, you know, to only uh, one or two of each of these and so forth. This is why I used the phrase mutilating the sample. If you grab nearly a third, okay, almost exactly a third, 26 of 79, and you rip them out of your sample, your sample is very likely to have a different shape, okay? Um, you're going to be you're going to be tearing them out and then the the statistics aren't going to be weighted the same they're not going to look the same so we're arguing from that whole shape of that sample as it relates to the number of people with different names not you know okay hey it mentions this guy so this guy existed it's rather from you know adding up how many of each of these we find and then looking at the whole thing so if you go grabbing, you know, several people uh, of these different names and just pulling it out, it's, it's just not going to look the same anymore. Um, related to this, the fact that some other writer attests to the existence of a person it, that's also mentioned in the Gospels and Acts doesn't change the fact that that person is mentioned in the Gospels and Acts, right? And if we're asking... Um, what is the appearance of the statistical uh, occurrences of names of people about whom stories are told or who are described or who are uh, mentioned in the Gospels and Acts, these persons are relevant to that question. We want to know what that looks like. They don't cease to be relevant to that question because somebody else over here uh, it says that that person existed. I mean, why why would that change the relevance to the question of what what the sample looks like in the Gospels next? So it just it just makes no sense at all. Um, a reductio of this would be suppose we had even more persons uh, mentioned in say the Pauline epistles then we would become less and less able to evaluate the appearance of the statistics in the Gospels and Acts. So, for example, suppose that uh, Paul mentioned that Jesus' foster father was named Joseph um, and that he had a brother named Joseph, like he mentions that he had a brother named James. Oh, that's two 
to Joseph's Fewer. Gotta take them out now because they're independently attested in the uh, uncontested Pauline epistles. Why? Like, why, why would we take those out? Um, they even have a rather strange bit of rhetoric at a certain point. They say, uh, they're talking about Papias, and they say, uh, we grant to Balcom that the disciples whom Papias names correspond to the disciples in, in the Gospels. But actually, they're going to use that against Balcom because they're going to use that as an argument for taking them out of the Gospels and Acts sample. And then as, as they say, you know, um, it's largely informative, uninformative, excuse me, because they already include a large number of persons independently attested, a crucial uh, consideration and so forth. So, so don't, don't try to tell us you're, you're granting something helpful. Usually when we say I'm granting this to my opponent, it's supposed to be something that's helpful to your opponent. But in this context, uh, for them to quote unquote grant that these are the same disciples named in the Gospels and Acts is their excuse for taking them out of consideration. So please don't tell me about what you're granting to Balcom about the, the disciples named in Papias. It's, it's very strange. They're counting against the Gospels, something that overall you would think would count for the Gospels, right? That they're named elsewhere. Um, and moreover, it seems that they should it should count for them both in terms of external confirmation. Um, in many cases, I wouldn't necessarily say Papias, but Josephus. Uh, naming them, but also be able to count by way of just its contribution to the statistical shape of the Gospels and Acts distribution. All right, now, if we knew that they were not independent, if we had some very strong extra evidence from somewhere else that if any person is named in another source, you know, in one of the Pauline epistles, uh, for example, or in Josephus or whatever, that the occurrence in the Gospels or Acts is just based on that, you know, that, that uh, say somebody found out that this guy existed from Josephus and then he just made up a story about him. If we already knew that, then that would be one reason why we could argue for taking them out of consideration. Like, well, we know that that this isn't something the Gospels uh, are reporting on their own or from their own sources of information. We, we already know they just made this up based on um, Josephus or even based on the Pauline epistles. But uh, to their credit, Gregor and Blaze don't make that an argument for taking these names out of the sample. They do suggest at one point that uh, Luke may be basing, his, or the author of Acts, may be basing his work on Josephus, but that's just a, a possible hypothesis that they're talking about. It's definitely not the argument that they give for taking the names out of the sample. I think they realize, to their credit, that that would be question begging, that you can't make that a fundamental assumption of your entire statistical um, critique. You know, we're just assuming that if it's independently, if it's attested over here, then they just grabbed the name from there and made made up the story about him. You know, they can't just assume that to start with. So I don't think that's why. And also, um, I, I don't think I would be surprised if they would argue that Papias 
writings occurred before the writing of Mark, okay? But there are disciples, you know, named in Papias that they're taking out of the uh, Gospels Acts sample, um, even though those disciples are named in Mark, which, you know, they consider to be the earliest Gospels. So I, I, I don't think they're at all implying that, you know, Mark based those disciples' names on Papias. So I don't think that's their argument. As I say, it's just boldly, they almost seem to consider it obvious that if these are not um, in contention of being invented, if they just grant the existence of these persons, then we've just got to take them out of consideration altogether and remove them and then turn around and uh, complain that now we only have a sample size of 53 because we subtracted 26 from 79. Um, that's, that's terrible methodology. It's not correct. There's no argument for it. I want to make two analogies to close this out. One of these analogies was suggested by my husband, Tim McGrew, and then I made up one of my own. So I hope this will help. Um, this one is from Tim. Suppose there's a basketball player and you are trying to evaluate how good he is at free throws. And um, a certain number of his free throws have been captured on video and are included in a highlights reel of his career thus far. Now, 100% of those are successes, right? You know, the reason they're included in a highlights reel is because, whoa, you know, he made it. He got, he got that free throw. He made that free throw successfully. Um, and then there are others that are not on the highlights reel. They just, you know, come from other sources. This is what happened. He made this free throw attempt and he did get it or he didn't get it or whatever, but they're not on highlights reel. Suppose that someone said, okay, all the free throws that are on the highlights reel, we will grant occurred as they occur there successfully. He made them. Those are not in contention of being invented. I'm going, we're going to grant that those are real successful free throws. Now, we've got this entire set, which includes those, among others, of, the, of uh, free throws and their outcomes that are reported in these other ways. Well, uh, we're going to remove from that set all the ones that are on the highlights reel because they're not in contention of being invented. And then we're going to evaluate how good of a player he looks to be just based on the ones that are left. And, you know, suppose you had 79 to begin with and you had 26 that were on the uh, highlights reel, 100% successful, because that's why they included them on the highlights reel. And you take those out and then you look at what's left and it's kind of a mixed bag. And you say, you know, he doesn't really look like he does all that well. You know, he's not all that impressive of a, of a player. Um, when we consider the contested uh, free throws, the, the ones that are in contention as possibly being invented, um, well, you know, it's, it, you know, it's somewhat better than, than nothing, but it's really not all that important. Uh, well, it would look a lot different if you had left in the ones 
from the highlights reel. So taking taking them out of consideration as evaluating his ability um, because there aren't highlights reel is is not a good procedure. You should consider you know the larger series, uh, including the ones that were put on the highlights reel. So that's one analogy. Now here's uh, my analogy. Suppose you have a coin and you've measured it in a lot of different independent ways. You've... Sorry about that motorcycle going by outside. Um, you've weighed the coin. You've, um, you know, tested its thickness. You've um, looked at it to make sure it's not warped in any way. You've done all kinds of tests and you're convinced the coin is fair. So it should turn up, you know, in the long run, 50% heads, 50% tails. Okay, now um, there's this group of flips that is done. 79 flips, okay? And a, um, a video camera is, is turned on and off, okay? And what we want to decide is whether the, the human reporter on the ground is a good reporter, okay? Based on whether his reports of the, the flips and their outcome seems to fit with the independently known uh, fact that the coin is fair. So we're testing him, we're testing the reporter at this point, okay? So um, we have the 79 flips and he writes down which are tails and which are heads. And then we've got this um, video camera that was on for 26 of those, okay? And he didn't, he didn't know that. Uh, which ones were on and where it was off. Okay, so we say, well, you know, we're not going to contest that the 26 that are videotaped turned out in such and such a way, uh, which is, in fact, the way that he said. So we're going to take those out of the set. And now we only have 53 reported by him. And now we're going to look, and golly, you know, like the heads are now outweighing the tails by quite a bit, but besides, it's a pretty small sample. It's only 53. Um, and and so this is kind of uninformative about how reliable he is as a reporter because it's, it's only a sample of 53. Of course, you had a sample of 79, but you mutilated that sample by taking out the ones that were recorded on the videotape. There's no reason to do that, okay? If we want to, if we want to look at his report of heads and tails and say, how does this correspond to the, the fact that we know the coin is fair, then we should just look at all 79. Because we, we can do that, right? We can look at the 79 and we can kind of say, you know, all right, that's not a very big sample anyway, by the way. 79 is not all that big of a sample, so it becomes a really big deal to mutilate it by about a third by taking 26 out. Um, but at least we can get somewhat better of an idea of how his reports correspond to the fairness of the coin. But it's going to be harder to get an idea if we take out the ones that were recorded independently, nor is there any reason to do so. Okay, again, if we knew that he had gone and watched the video and, and then uh, ooh, I'm going to, you know, erase what I said and I'm going to write down what the video says, but we can't assume that to begin with. We're, we're trying to decide by looking at the shape of his set of reports whether he's a truth teller or not 
about the way that the coin falls. So obviously it would be question begging to assume that uh, he, you know, cheated. Um, so it, it would be a very, very bad statistical procedure to take out 26 of those outcomes just because they happen to also be caught on camera. So I hope that gives you an idea of why this is not a good approach for them to take those out. Next time, I'm going to be talking about some of the specific impacts of that um, until a full reanalysis is done. You know, I can't be super confident, you know, like definitely it made this difference, but we can point just by reading their article to places where it's uh, plausible that it would make a difference. And I think they would acknowledge that it would make somewhat of a difference because they call it a crucial consideration. And they actually say that this is a reason why the uh, analysis is largely uninformative is because supposedly we're supposed to take out 26 of these names right at the beginning from the Gospels and Acts reports. Okay, so come back next time. And I hope you're having a joyful Advent season. And I hope you will have a Merry Christmas in case I forget to mention that next time around. And please come back as we continue this series on the Gospels Name Statistics argument at the Lydia McGrew channel where we're making common sense rigorous. <laughs>